Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. See, now I just want to go to a restaurant where after I order, they just throw the raw materials down to the table in front of me and then just stare at me for 45 minutes. That's pretty close to a Korean barbecue. <laughs> Girl. I mean, you, you have the grill, so at least you can do something with the ingredients, but that, that's mostly it. You just call them the parts you want and you assemble. <laughs> Ever been to a stir-fry place? You do the opposite of that. You feel like a god. <laughs> No, that's like the most awkward. Like, here you go, slave. Cook my terribly put-together stir-fry bowl. <laughs> like, I don't know if you guys have hoo hot out by by you, but we have some of those in the Midwest. And it's just, I can feel them judging me like, dear God, this guy took, I think, Brussels sprouts and, like, crab meat. And I'm, I think it's just six pounds of peppercorn. I refuse to fry this. This is garbage. Get better taste. Is what I expect them to say each time I bring a bowl to them. <laughs> I, they got to do it like Burger King, where it's like you can order a number one, two, three, four, five, and maybe make like one substitution without me throwing you out. That's <laughs> the only way food should be. I'm the same way with hibachis. It's like, no, I don't want to see the food made for my entertainment. That, that should be behind <laughs> closed doors in a smoke-filled room. <laughs> I don't want to know that people made my food. People are disgusting. And this is staying in the episode point. purely for that line. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> So, surprise, we have nine minutes of garbage at the start of the episode. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> well, uh, with all that of our systems out of our systems. Blah. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight... Shoot, I didn't come up with another M-word. <laughs> that joke had to die eventually, and I think I finally killed it. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and I'm being joined today by my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I'm the page master. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I was better in the book. Always true. And, more importantly, we have a special guest tonight. Joining us today, uh, everyone say hello to Adam DeColibus, author and uh, part-time podcast caller. <laughs> hey, everybody. How's it going? Fantastic. How are you doing today, Adam? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. All right. Well, sadly, not all the news out there was good. Uh, earlier today, when I was sitting down to try and write this intro... Uh, I saw the news that uh, Stan Lee had passed away, and boy, that one's smart. But it, it really got me thinking, at least he was here long enough to get to see the full rise of comic book movies. So all the properties that he'd been working on you know, years ago, developing these characters, are now regularly making hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office and completely dominating pop culture. And it's fascinating because if you look at comic book movies, the way they're adapted into films is kind of a piecemeal thing. You know, if you were to pick up something like Jaws, that's pretty darn close to how the book is. The movie, the book, you could, you could follow along. You'd say they're very similar. But for a comic book, you don't quite get that. You kind of get bits and pieces of column A, column B, and then they just make up everything else to fill in column C. And it's just a really, really interesting topic to me to go through and look at what movies nail adaptions and which ones don't and the reasons for that. Because everyone has a different approach to the material. Uh, for the last few once, I guess it'd be. We've been covering the Harry Potter movies on the show, and it's it's really interesting to see how those diverge and follow the source material, and how rabid the fans are. Uh, you know, little changes there can really freak people out, or on occasion, some of those changes are the thing people point out that they love the most. So I, I thought we could sit down for a while here and just, uh, yeah, maybe discuss some of our favorite book-to-films, and uh, what we think they did right in all of those. Or mostly because I just can't stop complaining about the Dark Tower. What what can go horribly, horribly amiss? <laughs> also, uh, hopefully no one here is in love with the Hobbit films, but I might have a few negative things to say there as well. <laughs> Spoilers, I, I was once cast as Bilbo Baggins in a community theater production as the world's tallest Hobbit, and uh, I have what? a special <laughs> connection to that material. <laughs> Did I never tell you guys that one? Uh, as, no! As a, no! Okay. All right. Does this all right. never fucking come up? Uh, you put that on a resume. I could, yeah. There were, there were t-shirts with my face drawn on them. <laughs> Wait, uh, what? We've never yeah. seen this? Uh, as a kid, I was in one community play, and it was uh, a 
a play version of The Hobbit. So uh, I have brown curly hair. Uh, I was out of shape as like a 13-year-old. So uh, they're like, perfect. Put this fat kid in some uh, hairy feet and we got we got a show. I wonder where they got the hairy feet. That's that's the question. I did not ask any questions about that. There was just <laughs> one day, like two days before we performed, where they put some spirit gum on top of my foot and just slapped down some like kind of pubic hair stuff. I don't want to know where it came from. I really oh. don't. Uh, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> super itchy. Super itchy. It looked very realistic. Uh, I don't want to know. Just going to so, leave it a mystery. Exactly. <laughs> So whenever you watch the Hobbit movies, Cody, there's a sense of professional jealousy there, isn't there? A little bit. A lot of it, actually. It's like, God damn it. Ah, he thinks he's he thinks he's a great actor, doesn't he? Mm, not my Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> he doesn't pick up the ring the way I picked up the ring. Exactly. Uh, the pass out scene in uh, The Hobbit Hole. I don't know if I would have played it that way, but that's just one professional's opinion against another. No, I've never actually gone back to watch the video of that because I'm sure it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. <laughs> uh, and I really, it's not the performances that I find negative in The Hobbit. It's the idea that they took what was a very episodic book about, God, how long is that? 200, 300 pages? It's, it's not super long. And decided to stretch that into nine plus hours of movie. That's the same complaint everyone has. But the idea of that shift really takes the focus away from... Uh, almost the more kid-friendly whimsy that would be throughout the actual source novel and makes it more of a giant blockbuster action flick, which doesn't quite fit for The Hobbit. It might work great in The Lord of the Rings, but to me, it drove me crazy just seeing uh, Bomber and the rest of the dwarves running around, bouncing between canyons and uh, between rivers and stuff. It was, it was very, very unsettling. Well, it comes across as unintentionally hilarious whenever the premise of the book is intentionally as small stakes as possible like they're just hunting for treasure so whenever you restructure it to be an epic battle of good versus evil and it's still just them getting treasure it just makes the movies more of an odd shaggy dog story they, they had some talk about greed in there i guess i you do have to admit though uh in the books Bilbo Baggins gets knocked out with a rock at like the start of the Battle of the Five Armies and misses the whole climax. And I have a feeling that would never quite play to today's audiences. No. Just, just imagine you spend like eight hours getting up to this point. There's there's millions of dollars of CGI on the screen of armies approaching, and then all of a sudden Bilbo just takes one of the face and then wakes up in its credits. Wow. The greatest troll job Peter Jackson ever plays on mankind. <laughs> uh. I just got to throw it back to the fact that uh, uh, Cody just said that the way they were hopping around was unsettling. That's my best uh, yeah. play I've ever unintentionally done, and I'm going to retire from talking for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I get a gold trophy and I can just go home. But, uh, I mean, every, everyone knows about The Hobbit and how it doesn't quite work. That's an extreme example. But there's other more subtle stuff out there when it comes to movie adaptations. Like, uh, have you guys ever seen the Jack Reacher films with Tom Cruise? No, no. I have not. Okay. I've only seen one, but uh, it was ages ago. Yeah. So uh, just imagine Tom Cruise. Just it's Tom Cruise as he appears in every movie. Uh, <laughs> he's not bad in it. It's actually I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Uh, I haven't seen the second one, but I tried to get my dad to watch it because I knew he was a fan of the books. And he like stopped me before I could even put the DVD in the player because he was looking at the cover and he's like, no, this is not right. Apparently, uh, let's see, I grabbed this from Wikipedia and this is how uh they describe Jack Reacher. Uh, he is six foot five inches tall, weighing 210 to 250 pounds, and having a 50 inch chest. And never go back. He is described as having a six pack like a cobbled city street, uh, a chest like a suit of NFL armor, and biceps like basketballs. And we got Tom Cruise to play the role. And my, my dad could never reconciliate those two in his mind. He's like, this, this goes against the spirit of the book to cast Tom Cruise as this mountain of a man. He's not nearly monstrous enough. I feel like Tom Cruise still describes himself that way, though. <laughs> yeah, that's his, that's his resume. And it, it works perfect when you're doing something like Mission Impossible, but I can definitely see the point there. And uh, maybe it's a better off that I never read the, the, the source books on that. I've heard the same thing about Sahara. Did you, guys, did you guys remember that one at all with Matthew McConaughey? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was going to be a franchise. It, that was supposed to launch like a hundred movies. That was going to be the next big thing out there. Just uh, 
Matthew McConaughey as the American James Bond. But dirty. Really? It was supposed to be huge. And uh, boy, I remember just how that made zero impact on release. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that one uh, was originally just to be standalone. The movie itself works as a standalone, but the there's a large book series behind it. And the, the idea was that this one made bank. They were just going to keep going back to the well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This was during that amazing period between when the Star Wars prequel started to tank and when we discovered superhero movies after Spider-Man broke back, where studios were just trying to latch on to anything they possibly could, which worked out great in the end because that's how we got so many great adaptations that wouldn't have been made in anything other than a franchise vacuum. Like that's how we got the Lord of the Rings in the first place. Lord of the Rings is really just a miracle project. If you think about everything that had to go through, the fact that Peter Jackson, who at that point had pretty much only directed gore films and one Oscar contender, was given a, a check for hundreds of millions of dollars to go film a giant trilogy like that with CGI that hadn't been proven. I'm pretty sure Peter Jackson had like naked photos of somebody at New Line. It's, it's the only way I can explain my mind that he got everything to play out the way he wanted to. <laughs> they actually uh, made it into the movie as one of the Golem designs. <laughs> He's one of the ghost witches in the background of part three. <laughs> but I, I don't want to keep going on the negative ones here because, like Jamie was saying, there's actually quite a few amazing, amazing book-to-movie projects that have happened out there. And they don't have to be page-per-page page perfect. Uh, something like Hellboy really grabs my attention because Del Toro's attention to the lighting and framing, trying to match the compositions to the comic book. The story itself, eh, not not really quite any of Mignola's comics, but the spirit, I would argue, is still there, which is the most important thing. Or you have ones where they make changes to make something brilliant, like uh, any of the James Bond movies. If you guys have ever read any of Ian Fleming's books, James Bond is pretty much just a sociopath. Like, he's, he's not overly charming. He's pretty rough. Uh, murders a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, a lot of that's still true about Sean Connery's portrayal, but there's some sort of charisma that shines through Connery that makes it less of a pulp novel and something much grander. And something we all not only watch just for the thrills, but still love. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's partially because James Bond vacations all over the world and gets all the pretty women. Or maybe it was small changes like that that makes it more enduring. Yeah, I think that's definitely the biggest plus in the column of uh, of ad- adapting properties is so often you end up growing the world and growing the characters in ways that never would have happened if they just stuck to one medium. How you, that's how you get things like uh, the James Bond franchise, which is arguably better in its complete form than how it was whenever Fleming originally created James Bond and the world he inhabited. I think, it's, I think part of the reason for that is writing is such a inherently secluded activity <laughs> mentally. Yeah, I, I can speak for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's so much stuff that never will never, ever occur to a single solitary writer, no matter how genius they may be. I feel like whenever you open this stuff up to the world, it can it will always do more good than harm. And I'm trying to think back to some of the quotes because I I just watched The Princess Bride uh, on Blu-ray again last night. And there's a Criterion edition of it out now. And on the commentary track they provide, they actually have the author talking over parts of the movie and that switches back and forth to the director. So you get, you know, both sides. And it's. One, really fascinating to me that they're not in the same room, but just giving separate commentaries. Uh, but two, it, it's just really interesting to see the guy basically admit, hey, this is different. That's different. I like what they did here. This all comes together pretty close. Because you don't always get that. Uh, Stephen King adaptions are always fascinating because sometimes he's very happy with changes. And then other times you get stuff like The Shining where he just kind of swears it off for the rest of his life. Yeah. <sighs> right. I have, I've yet to see The Shining, but I've seen so many... Uh, I've seen so many films on youtube about it on, <laughs> on how there's the uh uh the conspiracy theory about how stanley kubrick filmed the moon landing and how that's connected in the movie yeah because uh, there's the sweater with the apollo rocket on it and stuff like that yeah yeah and the uh the the apartment uh the apartment number um and the uh the patterns on the carpet 
it's just they they went they went deep with that one. <laughs> it's an entire cottage industry of just analyzing that one film. I saw a theory on it recently that someone was claiming Stanley Kubrick somehow uh, like photoshopped his face into the clouds at the start of that movie. <laughs> oh yeah, People I've will seen say that. Whatever they want. Oh. But, but is it Did you see the though? face? Can, can you see it? No, not really. <laughs> Mike, now I that you're tried. taking vertigo drugs, can you go try and find Stanley Kubrick's face at the start of The Shining? Will I, that don't, help? I don't want to have vertigo and then look at Stanley Kubrick. That's terrifying. <laughs> or, or the clouds. <laughs> it's not a good mix. Yeah, I suppose not. Adam, <laughs> Adam, as like an author, though, how, how would you approach something? Uh, do you think... What's your opinion on trying to translate? If you were ever lucky enough to have one of your works translated to screen, I mean, most authors probably don't have a say in how it's done, but you can all imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I've definitely imagined as I, like, even as I write, I still think of the the movie aspect of it, because I think, like, in all, all creators' heads, there's the, the movie playing in their head, or at least it's how mine works. And, yeah. oof, I don't know. It would be, I would, the least I would say is that it would be extremely difficult. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> If if I was to be like really really happy with the way it worked out, I definitely have to be there with the screenwriters and the directors. But it, just to see them take the work and run with it, that would be that would be crazy. I think I'd be a paycheck guy. You were making it <laughs> great. What's my check? Oh my god, it's yours. You can kill my babies. Feel free to add robots. Just go all robots. You want to make how place. many Kingsman sequels? Yes, please. <laughs> I'll be the producer on all of them. Uh, going back to what you said, though, this, this is not really related to movies at all, but that idea of a projector in your head as you're writing something or imagining something, that came up in a high school English class of mine, and it blew my head because it was mentioned to the teacher, you know, someone visualizing the story and how they really liked the parts they were visualizing compared to, you know, like the book cover illustration or something dumb they were looking at. And a couple of the other kids in the room did not understand that concept. When they were reading, they weren't visualizing the stuff. They just like took the words in, and that was as far as the creative process went for them. They didn't try and construct like a. I don't even know if "try" is the right word. They just naturally didn't construct that kind of mental movie. And those were the kids who hated English class. Like they just didn't feel there was any worth to them being there. And it just never occurred to me until that time that there were people who didn't have that experience. Yeah, that's yeah. I've never heard of that happening. That's that's crazy. I don't Are know they how dead inside? without seeing. I, I can probably, only assume. Probably, yeah, yeah. No, there's something. There's something going on. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have suggested that to them because they all probably would have beat me up and thrown me in like a trash can or something. But mm. maybe there could be. Uh, there could be like the division in the school of like the people who see the projector and people who don't. And then like you can have like a posse of people who see the projector. And then you can't get beat up. I just I just feel like uh, maybe if you're not into that, if you don't naturally have those skills, you find other outlets for creativity, be it physical sculpting, like maybe you just make yourself a bodybuilder. I don't want to put that on bodybuilders because I'm sure there's plenty of them out there with creative lives. But it just blew my mind. I, I still have trouble imagining reading a book and not being able to just paint that mental picture along with it. But I can definitely understand now why so many people have zero interest in picking up a book for fun, because it would be fun at that point. You're just reciting the words. Yeah, no, that would be that would be torture just to read and not not see anything. That would just be like staring at the at the screen in the movie theater and the projectors off. And those people become studio executives. <laughs> Zing! And then there's immediately like a ten gallon brick that falls from my house and kills me. It reminds me of those stories you hear about people who have a brain surgery and coming out of it, they no longer understand music anymore. Like it's all just tones to them. Like, God, I could not imagine that. Uh, my, years ago, my dad had a uh, tumor removed. And after the surgery, I think it just did a small amount of tweaking with his thought process. As we're driving around, he gives directions. He'll know the difference between left and right. He'll know we need to make a left turn. But he'll tell me, turn right at the stop sign. So I'll turn right. And then he'll yell at me like, no, you went the wrong way. And it, oh. it's been that way for years, ever since that surgery, apparently. Like, he, he knows the directions in his head, but it doesn't. It gets lost in translation coming out of his mouth now. So you just rely on, on GPS? I just ignore him now. He, <laughs> <laughs> I have to double check oh, wow, like three times. Turn left. Irrelevant old man. <laughs> left, left, wow. or I'll just yell him point, and he can he just point the directions. Uh, way to reduce your dad to Hodor levels, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. He can still beat me up anyways. He's a tough man. <laughs>
But I, I do think that that is uh, that mental movie we all create in our heads whenever we read. Those, those of us who have that gene, apparently, because I guess it's 50-50 now. Oh, I hope it's not that much. There's that, that kind of that, that thrill of seeing if somebody else's notes match up to yours whenever it comes to the content of a book. Because I know that's always my favorite thing uh, to talk about whenever I'm talking about a book a mutual friend and I have read is, okay, so in your head, what's this? And wh- what are these? And seeing that game played out with all of the money in the world sometimes is absolutely riveting. Like I just re- Turn to the Lord of the Rings films again. I will never forget the moment I sat there watching Fellowship of the Ring and saw the events of The Hobbit recapped as told by Peter Jackson. And that moment of, oh, this looks like what I thought it would look like, but pretty. (laughs) (laughs) This is what somebody with a better imagination than I have thinks all this stuff looks like. So you do the the stage play version I did. I just imagined it was all paper mache. Oh, so Thanks seeing so. people that weren't wearing fake beards is like, well, not amateur fake beards. Is like, what? What is this? Did they get real cavemen? What is happening? They found real dwarves, guys. It's amazing. I have to make war with this strange new land discovered by Peter Jackson. <laughs> it was just a documentary <laughs> the whole time. Uh, on the other hand, though, Jamie, while that's really fun, I think it can lead to a lot of issues too because people are very, very, very married to a lot of the ideas they come up with in their head. So when they see someone else portraying it, they get a little defensive. Like, that's not right. That's not right. They screwed up all these details. That's I never would have made it that way. No. I think we see that, hell, with uh, the, the latest Star Wars film, the portrayal of Luke Skywalker was so opposed to how people had imagined Luke from all the expanded universe stories that it was kind of an affront to them when he was a totally different character than they had imagined for 20 years. Uh, spoilers for Star Wars. No one's happy now. Everyone hates each other. I should stop talking about Star Wars before they start mailing bombs to my house. Now these oh. are the these are the true Star Wars. <laughs> and we've been docked. <laughs> I wonder what that would even look like. What would the package look like? Would it just say the force is with you and then boom and that's it? Or I maybe if they're being that clever, I figure it'd just be like a lot of uh obscenities. Justice just for Windows. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you talk to Samuel Jackson, he's still out there saying, I'm alive. I've got the force. I'm down an arm, that's not a problem. They've got robot limbs in this universe. I don't think he'll admit he's dead. No, that doesn't seem like something he'd do. Nah, you could probably like, ask him like, about Deep Blue Sea and he'd still say he was alive in that one too, though. I feel like he admits absolutely nothing. Like he could he could legit be eating dinner with you and he'd have like some, I don't know, whatever ketchup on his face. And you'd be like, hey, bro, you got you got ketchup on your face. And you would just, no, no, I don't. I don't feel just like that's his that's his style. Uh, I, personal question. If you saw Samuel Jackson eating a hamburger and he's just making a mess on his face, would you have the nerve to tell him that? Because I'm pretty sure I, I would just not make eye contact. And I'd be like, copy him so I'd be closer to him. <laughs> <laughs> and we he all know what happens when he has egg cheeks. on his face. Oh, speaking of the spirit. <laughs> what? What? Well, it's never what said. A, Weird thing. What a, I mean, if I can tie that back into the idea of adapting source material. Wow. Um, I guess that's what happens when you have one guy basically try and turn one story into a completely separate one. Instead of the spirit being the Will Eisner originals, we got Frank Miller's Sin City as the spirit. And that was such a, a weird whiplash moment for me. I got all excited when that movie was coming out and I bought a lot of the source comics Got all excited, read all of them, went into the theater, and I loved the film, but I could recognize it was a train wreck. Like, I loved it because it was so bad. Uh, the Spirit is one of the greatest bad comic book movies ever made. It's right up there with Steel. Oh, boy. Uh, but that's kind of the double-edged sword when it comes to any adaptation. If an adaptation is going to be interesting, then it can't simply attempt to just recreate as closely as possible another artist's work because except for very rare occasions you're only going to come up with an inferior copy i mean to make it interesting you have to put a little bit of yourself in there and it has to be this artist as presented by this other artist with 
uh, a little bit of their own vision and their own fingerprint in there. And yeah, the the spirit is maybe the worst case scenario <laughs> of something like that happening. Like, here's not Will Eisner, but Will Eisner as told through the lens of Frank Miller, who is in his crazy alcoholic period. So we're getting all of the anger and darkness of that man and what he was going through at that period kind of infecting this uh, this universe that probably would have been better off just uh, hedging as close to the source material as possible. Yeah. And then you get the opposite. You get things like James Gunn with Guardians of the Galaxy, where it's like, despite those movies being as recent as they are, it's really hard to picture the Guardians of the Galaxy before James Gunn touched them. Well, most people probably didn't know anything about the Guardians before that. They're one of those low-key comic properties that just didn't matter to most comic fans. Didn't matter at all to movie fans. I mean, the the awareness of them was pretty much zero, which is probably for the best, because he was able to take those characters and completely readapt them to his own needs. Yeah, that's the the best-case scenario of somebody taking all the stuff that's weird and fucked up inside of them and grafting them onto... A pre-existing story and pre-existing characters. Yeah, I, I, I think not all properties lend themselves to, I guess, um, creative symbiosis. But going back to the spirit, like, like you said, that works best. I love, I love sort of interrupt, but I'm very excited that we're going to spend ten minutes talking about the spirit. I wish this could be every episode. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for years, man. Adam, have you seen the spirit? Me? Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have you have you no, ever no, seen no, the spirit? No, no. It's no, uh, one of the most fascinating Samuel L. Jackson performances ever. It's an amazingly bad movie. Everything's just CGI together on green screens. Oh. Uh, but it's it's amazingly bad. It's just you have to see it, I think, at least once just to see what a thing it is. Did it did it just come out? No, this was uh, years ago. Something like 2008, two- I believe. Yeah, 2008. Oh, shoot. Yeah, uh, so there's a scene where Samuel Jackson is just screaming about getting egg on his face, and that has just lodged my brain for the rest of the time. Wow. Sorry, that was a bit of context for everyone else who <laughs> didn't bother watching The Spirit, which is 99.9% of the world. <laughs> Mike, I cut you off. What was the point you were trying to make? I, I forget not everyone is us, which is good for humanity. <laughs> um, but like the Frank Miller's The Spirit is... Frank Miller merging himself into the spirit. And it's evil Frank Miller, so it super doesn't work. Um, but I think even good, not alcoholic, insane Frank Miller wouldn't have been able to do that either, because that property, I believe, works best when just being what it is. And you can compare that to the 80s spirit movie, which is a TV movie with no money and starring Flash and Gordon. And it's incredible because it it transcends the tv movie cheapness of the time based solely on the fact that it's adapting something that is whole and no matter where you put it is going to be good so it's not hampered by all the you know abc movie of the week crap that's thrown on it Oh, yeah. You can check this on the DC Universe app streaming now. Uh, Do yourself a favor and watch the Spirit TV movie. If you're a fan, it's everything you could want in a Spirit movie. I had no idea this even existed. This is exciting. It's delightful. I feel like we should also be getting paid for DC now. (laughs) (laughs) Someone want to put in a sponsorship note? Like, please, $7 so we could pay for one month? $7 is asking for a lot. That's true. Have you folks at home tried Batman? (laughs) <laughs> okay so that's a, a a weird chinese puzzle trap kind of thing here we've got batman the comic books which go on to inspire batman the tim burton movie which kind of goes off to inspire batman the animated series which then goes on to inspire its own comic books that adapt the stories from the tv show and i don't know which layer of adaption we're supposed to stop at and where it, it stops inspiring other forms of itself Man, that that one, full circle. It, it keeps going. I mean, there are video games off of it, toys, more comics, comics inspired by those comics, TV shows inspired by the TV show. Uh, it, it's the germ of that one idea. It's just amazing how that exploded and just is in 90 different things. And not even all of them Batman. Yeah, you, you do not find a more perfect symbiosis between creator and audience than with long-running comic books. Because 
within a generation, the people who are telling the stories, who are making the movies, writing the comics, doing whatever, they're people who are fans of The Last Incarnation. And that cycle just keeps self-perpetuating over and over and over across all mediums. Or the guy really didn't like the last iteration of the comic and is now trying to do everything different possible in the current oh, iteration. Yeah. <laughs> Either you way, see... influence goes on forever indefinitely. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you see that all the time now in uh, film series. If it lives long enough, eventually they'll hit a bad stretch. Instead of canceling it forever, they'll go, oh, no, 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 there's still money there. Let's just try <laughs> it again, but make it different. Let's uh, let's take Tim... Uh, uh, uh... Let's put Tom Cruise in it. Yeah, just put some curse. No, like, uh, Batman's covered in neon. What if the next one was made by Christopher Nolan? Uh, what if everyone hated the last James Bond? So now it's starts in black and white. You can you can go in so many opposite directions that are still clearly tied to their predecessor, and it's it's a fascinating process figuring out that pull and push and what works and what doesn't. Those those long running properties and franchises have an interesting snowball effect attached to them, where they just keep picking up stuff that creators have left there as it rolls down the hill. So you get James Bond, which can keep rebooting itself, but also keeps um, somebody who makes a new one, wants to you know fix it or change things up, is inspired by a series of different things other people did in the past, thinking the, the same thing. And Batman uh, works the same way. It's, it's all mythology-based, and when you're retelling mythology, you're... You're not really telling a, a straightforward story. You're telling stories that are have been told and then retold and then retold and details are added and details are lost. And it works the, the, the same way. The function's the same. Or you can see every Batman movie is Batman. Like You can't really make the argument. Even Batman and Robin is just bad 60s Batman. Like when he was, you know, fighting <laughs> panda bears and going to space. Um <laughs> You know, Batman Begins is the most faithful, but also not at all, really. It just adds entirely new characters and plot points. And the Batman movies actually follow the, the comic book realm in an interesting way, where Burton's first two are the Bill Finger comics. Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are moving into the, the sillier stuff. You know, Batman Forever is literally when Robin was was added and things lightened up some. Batman and Robin is when things went off the rail. We got Zebra Batman and I must wearing a pink costume. <laughs> do you think Do you think they're ever gonna make a sequel with Batman versus the Panda Bear? I Just a matter be... of time. This This is This is why I would like it. <laughs> Batman would be fighting like this weird embodiment of his color scheme. Yeah, Panda Man, Panda Man. We gotta get Panda Man in, uh, up in here. I think they... the Batman biggest boner cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> As they go through and start dredging up all the C-list villains, I'm so excited for them to just grab the worst possible ones. Like, who haven't we done yet? <sighs> Fine. Throw it. They're new. Do what you want. I don't care. Max I die. It's crazy quilt. Yes. Yes, a thousand times I would take that. I, I mean, even though Bane is a famous character, the way Tom Hardy put such a crazy spin on that. I would love it if they did that with like Firefly or some of the other lesser known Batman villains. Mostly I just want every bad guy to have a silly voice. So <laughs> <laughs> all it takes to make me happy. Batman. <laughs> with the silly voice for the panda, would he just be mute or, or would they have subtitles or would they do the silly voice? Uh, no, it'd be a very racist Chinese accent. Uh, oh. I was going to go for a not racist Chinese accent, but I mean, <laughs> if they want to do your version, whatever. I, I just like the idea of them getting progressively more in hot water for every Batman movie with something questionable. <laughs> just imagine how bad the product placement have gotten. I mean, it, it, it was like when they started adding uh, Chinese actresses in Iron Man 3 because it was a co-production. Now we just have Batman movies where they're randomly cutting to like the Chinese zoos, like, look at their pandas. <laughs> what a booming economy. Don't download any suspicious emails. <laughs> Truly, this is a beautiful, thriving country, and then it's just like a commercial for the next 15 minutes. I swear to God, they did that in one of the Twilight movies. There, there was a part where one of the vampires is standing on a mountain, and the camera just swirls around him for like five minutes. And I'm pretty sure it was just there to show off how cool Canada looks in parts. The directors were very bored. <laughs> we had the sweet dolly. We have to use it. Now spin around the mountains. Now I just want to see Captain America cut an ad for the social credit system in China. <laughs> so you got docked 14 points for flashing yourself. Box office pulp. Now not playing in China. 
<laughs> unfortunately, ever. So, for all of our talks of adaption here, we're getting away from the idea of actually going back to the source material and talking about the books themselves. And, hell, we've got an actual author here. I feel like we'd be remiss to not talk about your book, Adam. Well, uh, thanks so much for asking. And uh, so far, I've been having a blast. So, thanks for having me on, firstly. Oh, and, no, it's uh, great to have you. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, Caravan... I'll just tell you guys a little bit about it. Caravan is about a guy from England who, uh, a little after World War One, he goes to uh, uh, the Sahara to take pictures of the desert and to take pictures of the culture because at that time, there's this fascination for uh, uh, every, uh, the whole culture from over there. And while he's there, he starts uh, becoming really fascinated with the desert and, and the symbolism of what it means to him and how uh, uh, essentially it means that he has total freedom over his life. And to connect with what you guys are saying and uh, with films and all that, the film Lawrence of Arabia definitely had a, uh, a large influence on the film, uh, on the book and uh, on my writing, for sure. So, yeah, that's what the book is about. I remember uh, a couple of years back I had a roommate and he was dedicated to get through the actual book, Lawrence of Arabia. And my God, I think that sat on our coffee table for a year. That thing is a monster. It's huge. Uh, on the plus side, the movie's only like four hours, so I was able to get through it much <laughs> faster than him. But wow. out of curiosity, so <laughs> always watch the movie; it's so much faster. Uh, so for the writing style of the book, did you go and kind of go for uh, like a historical fiction type thing, where you're, you're trying to make it feel as if it's something that's actually within reality, but told from a made-up point, or is this closer to a nonfiction tale? It's it's closer to fiction. It's definitely leans more on the fiction side of things, but. Mm-hmm. One thing I definitely could have done more, uh, and I'll definitely do on my next book, is do a lot more research because I feel like when you have that context, uh, uh, it makes the rest of the of the world and the background come alive. Oh, sure. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read any Eric Larson. Uh, he's notable for for uh, like the Devil in the White City. Uh, he wrote another book about the Lusitania, and his stories to me are absolutely fascinating because he's trying to make them feel as realistic as possible, and he does such a great amount of research on the time that it's taking place in. You almost feel like you, you know, you're taking some sort of history class when you read something like The Devil in the White City because you've learned so much about Chicago uh, at the turn of the century. And that, it's, it's really amazing when authors can nail that kind of stuff and not make wow. it feel like it's just clumsy exposition. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's the other thing too. I, by the way, I haven't read any of his work. I'm going to have to check it out. But, oh, yeah, uh, I would uh, highly recommend it. It's just really, really, really well done stuff, especially yeah, if you have yeah. any interest in, like, the history of, uh, you know, American architecture or anything like that. Or murder. Wow. There's a lot of murder. <laughs> hey, if you, if you push, some, push somebody off a building, you, you get both of, those things, uh, both of those things in one, right? You get the architecture and you get the murder. Bonus. Yeah, no, it actually it focuses on H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, like one of uh, the most prolific oh. know, early serial killers for America. So right, if you're into, right. like, true crime stuff, it also has that appeal. Wow. I feel like I should get money from him as well now. Uh, <laughs> like, we'll get some money from Eric Larson. We'll get some from DC. Can someone talk about Doritos for 20 minutes? <laughs> uh, let me open up my bottle of Evian here. <laughs> Bring back Doritos 3D. <sighs> I do miss Doritos 3D. It was useless snack hour. <laughs> So, so, Adam, I'm curious, uh, what is your experience, if any, uh, in the region? Did you, do you know the area personally? Honestly, I, uh, I've never been over there to the, to the Middle East or to the Sahara. Uh, but if, if there's anything I could call research, it was watching Lawrence of Arabia and just reading up a little bit on it. But definitely next book I'm going to write, there's going to be a lot more traveling, a lot more, um, you know, if I, can, if I can make it happen, I travel there. But uh uh, there is there is a certain touch of uh, legitimacy that you can feel in the writing for sure. So, what brought you to Lawrence of Arabia? What was your appeal to that? I something that really appeals to me about that story is just the scope of the uh, the the size of the story that's being told. It, because <laughs> in in that four hour movie, uh, you can just get a sense of there's just a really large world being being displayed there. There's more than just Lawrence. There's more than just the 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 tribes there's you can almost get a sense of what the rest of the world would be like just from that film like just uh, not from that film but uh from the area that they cover it's just an amazing film yeah and and the filming style of it too you won't see anything else i think ever made that same way with that ultra ultra wide scope footage yeah you feel like right. you're really seeing for miles you are seeing for miles 
uh, some yeah. of the shots, like where Lawrence is walking out of the desert, that is such a it's such a deep shot. Right, <laughs> he was oh, really and... miles away from anything happening when they set that up. It's amazing. Yeah, and uh, I remember watching a documentary about how they filmed it, and they were saying that uh, something that they took a lot of great care in is that when they were showing, like they were doing a scope of them riding the camels, they had to make sure, okay, there was no no footprints, like everything was completely smoothed out. And uh, what, what kept on irritating them is that they had these plastic cups on set where they were giving everybody water. And, of course, it was super windy. So they would finish smoothing everything out, and the, the wind would come, uh, come by and blow out the cups onto the, onto the set. And oh. they'd have to run out there and go pick up the cups, smooth everything out, and then 20 minutes later, they'd blow out again. And it's just like, wow, you can appreciate it so much more when you see the, the scenes. And you're like, wow, wait a minute. They, they actually had to take care uh, to make sure that there was no footprints like that's crazy yeah imagine imagine if something like that were tried you know they, they tried that film now it would not be in the desert or they might have a little bit of location filming but a majority of the vast majority would probably just be on some sort of sound lot somewhere it, it doesn't have the same feel it never does yeah yeah i mean I, I guess some of the closest stuff i can think for that kind of scope and even that used a lot of cheating uh was really scott's prometheus just to back up the uh lawrence of arabia connection they actually went to Iceland for a lot of that and filmed. And you can tell those scenes. They feel so much more tactile than anything else you get where it's all CGI. Plus, wow. that was my in for Lawrence of Arabia, too. Just watching those giant scenes where Lawrence uh, is, is uh, the source of imitation for the android David. Just watching him try and copy that performance. It was so amazing. I had to go back and watch the movie just so I knew what the hell was happening. <laughs> <laughs> what the, the one scene I'll, I'll never forget is that scene where Lawrence of Arabia is at the headquarters near the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. and he blows out the match and then it cuts to the sunrise. Yeah. Oh, God. That one gives me every time. A great time for match cuts. Yeah. <laughs> match cuts. Oh, we've got like the 2001 bone toss. We've got the, the flames there. I mean, those are probably two of the, the better big examples I can think of. Obviously, there's thousands of them. If you look at any Edgar Wright film, you'll find a hundred. But those two stand out so much in my mind compared to, hell, most other things I can think of. I can't think of a movie I've seen in the last couple of years that would have anything even close to that in terms of power. We've sincerely yeah. completely lost the match cut almost completely. It's really a depressing bummer. Yeah. Mike, can you add in just like a, a short, sad song? And uh, if if, uh, if only we weren't just audio, you could put some R.I.P. mash cut credits. Why don't you sing one for us, Cody? <laughs> like just in memoriam. Do they have that at the Oscars? Do they have a sad song? I know they play one, but it doesn't have words. Well, make up some words. You're you're no, you're going through with this joke. Come on, make up a song here, <laughs> right on the spot about match cuts going the way of the dodo. Uh, one second. I'm looking up the lyrics to the Bodyguard. <laughs> this was a poll. Uh, it, when I think of dramatic old music, that's and I will always you think of dramatic love old music. You. you think of that? Yeah, you guys don't. Whitney yeah, Houston do. singing do the sure. theme from The Bodyguard. That's it. That's that's is the best cinema I ever got, and it was all downhill after The Bodyguard. <laughs> First, we lost the match cut, and then we lost The Bodyguard, and I don't know what's left for cinema. Thank and God we lost. still have books. <laughs> <laughs> If you can pull anything from this conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, where are you? I'm sorry, Adam. Were you saying something? I think Jamie might have stepped on you a little. Oh, no, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. No, now you guys have to fight. <laughs> well, this is happening. Yep. Uh, boy, you guys are probably in different states, too. This is going to take a long time to set up. Yeah. No, oh, no, I'll, just, I'll just start running. I'll just start running. <laughs> I'll meet you there. You run at each other, like uh, Mission Impossible 2 when they're on the motorcycles. <laughs> right, leap. right. <laughs> then that's dogs. the best way to solve these kind of kind of battles i always knew the day would come when you'd have to unleash me on a host <laughs> i've been waiting <laughs> personally it's, it's just been a matter of time that's why we keep getting co-hosts on here i mean your own private danny the dog <laughs> <laughs> i have no way to stretch that conversation out any further so i'm just going to jump back to the book for a couple more questions <laughs> this is my segue everyone's going to have to be okay with that <laughs> Do the clicker. So, Knock yourself out, buddy. <laughs> uh, so right now, we're recording this in November. There's, uh, I'm, I'm assuming everyone here has heard of the, the concept of, uh, I forget the abbreviation, but November, you're supposed to write a novel within 30 oh, days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Nano, Nano Remo or something like yeah. that. Yeah. 
as someone who's tried that for a grand total of like two days in his life consecutively, how crazy is that? As, as someone who's about to publish a book, may I ask how long this took you to put together? Uh, okay, so um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the uh, Nano Remo thing really quick, and then I'll answer that question. Sure. So because they both both answers kind of fit together. So while I was writing the book, I started it when uh, I was about thirteen. Is when I had the original idea, and I I started writing it out by hand. And sure enough, like two months later, I I put the story down, completely forgot about it, and uh, came back to it. And I just started writing the whole thing by hand. Wrote one hundred pages, two hundred pages, three hundred pages, then eventually got it to four hundred, and I ended it. And so after that. I, I took it to the computer and I started writing. And little by little, I realized, okay, one of the important things is to have a word count. That's that's just massive. So I started <laughs> out with something just really, really tiny. I started out with 500 words and then uh, I stayed with a thousand words for a while. And uh, uh, finally, one month, I thought, okay. And it wasn't in November. I believe it was in August. Uh, uh, I decided that I was going to do... 3,000 words every day for a month mm-hmm. and see where that took me. And that was, that was crazy. That's impressive. <laughs> that was crazy. So yeah, no, the, the, the nano remote thing is definitely crazy. But, uh, uh, looking back on it, I think the, the word count you're supposed to hit is what, like 1500 or something like that. <laughs> uh, I think the Stephen King standard is something like 10,000, but he's in some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, no, no, uh, no, I, I can't, I can't even, imagine how he does it that's just oh, man. he's a, a machine he, he can't stop <sighs> which is kind of evident in some of the books i'm a little yeah, mad yeah. because it's going to take me like nine years to read all of the stand that book is so long <laughs> then you have the director's cut cody uh, i have the director's cut it's great it's lasted me for like four different plane rides i just pull out the stand <laughs> i read a couple hundred pages and i don't feel like i'm getting any closer to the end <laughs> and you always have a murder weapon on you it, it's on a nook unfortunately uh, I was going to say, it did nearly kill Stephen King whenever he had to walk it to his publisher. <laughs> my um, favorite story ever. One of my favorites from on those end is uh, Neil Gaiman's Absolute Editions of the Sandman comics. Each volume of those, I, I swear to God, weighs like 50 pounds, and you could use it to bludgeon anyone to death. And there's like four volumes of them, so people come to Neil Gaiman's signings, and they're just carrying these books, and they have to stand there for hours. And every time Neil Gaiman talks about it, there's just you can hear the remorse in his voice. Like, why did I make something so heavy? These people are going to die. No one needs this. <laughs> why are they carrying me around? <laughs> so I think that's the real trick. Just write books that can only be pamphlets. No one gets hurt. Mm. Or just make me books. There you go. That's easier too. <laughs> so I'm curious, what is the plan uh, with the release of Caravan? Are you going through a self-publishing route, or do you have a publisher lined up? Uh, yeah, I'm doing the self-publishing route right now, and uh-huh. uh, we're going to do both uh, the ebook and the paperback. Oh, you're getting a physical release. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. actually, uh, I think it was two weeks ago I just got the very first paperback, and that was, uh, that was a crazy, crazy moment. Man, uh, I'm dead. I've been waiting for that moment my whole life. <laughs> I just buy other people's books and I write my name over them. That's oh, that's as close oh. as I get. You know what? You know what? you're you're pretty smart, man. I gotta start taking. I gotta start picking. I brand. have pretty... forty different books. It's amazing. I can't be stopped. <laughs> and you're so you're versatile. I'm in like different genres, different styles. I've got comics, strips, you name it. I just put my name on them. They're mine. But you died that, once. That was incredible. Uh, several times here. I've got a lot of Vonnegut's that are now elves. But boy, just uh, just one the dedication to actually get this thing out after so long. I, I give up on things after like a day. That's that's astounding. And and the fact that you're getting a real physical it. form of this, that's fantastic, man. I can't I, wait to see I this thing. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome, man. I'm, thanks so much for bringing it up, dude. It's it's been a blast. Well, appreciate having you on the show here. Um, man, next time you come up with something, you got to come visit us again. I'd love to hear more about what you got coming down the pipeline. Oh, yeah. yeah, sure thing. Sure thing. We'll do. I had a blast. All right, folks. Well, that's been Box Office Pulp. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of us on boxofficepulp.blogspot. We're on uh, Twitter at Box Office Pulp. You can find us on iTunes. Feel free to give a review. I, I think, as the kids say, smash that like. I don't know. I'm not that old. I should know these things. <laughs> I don't like how you worded that. Tell smash them to crack the like. bell. <laughs> Is that what you children are saying these days? Crack the bell? I don't like it. Adam, where's the best place to find you online? 
Unless you don't want to be found online if you want your privacy, hey. (laughs) Well, you can find me on uh, my blog, which is thirdlionstories.com. Me and a couple authors run a thing where we just put up short fiction. You can check it out. It's pretty cool. Uh, We also got uh, my social media. You know, just find me on Instagram, Adam Decaldus. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Great. Well, thank you so much for showing up today. really appreciate the time. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right, folks. That's a wrap. And like that, he's gone. I told you the story of how my mom would, uh, like, when I had girlfriends over, she would force Saul to pray, like we prayed normally before meals. <laughs> no, <laughs> so we... no. What the Well, fuck? that was essentially the story. But if I had girlfriends over, she'd be like, oh, it's time for dinner. Let's all bow our heads and pray. And my dad and I would just look at her like, what are you doing? We don't pray. We're barely religious. Most of us aren't religious. And she would, she would just like, you kidders, we always pray. We're good Christians. Please don't leave. <laughs> and that's that's pretty savage. Uh, yeah, I, I feel bad now thinking about it. I should just let mom have that white lie. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you should have stood your ground. I did. I feel bad. Well, it didn't matter anyways. The relationships didn't pan out. So <laughs> Because of all the Satan. That was it. They just were like, oh, man, there's a lot of skulls around here. This guy might not be into God. <laughs> they start noticing pentagrams. <laughs> there's so much My mom's frantically over there. just like holding curtains over stuff. No, no, no. Quick, put up that poster. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, please, please... Put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself... We now have the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think so. Let's go with, like, Image Odin. Well, look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn? He has Angela, who's, like, Lady Hercules. She is, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as Guardian, I think it's it's fair play, so... Hey, she's not technically as Guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has, like, a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. (laughs)